welcome back to the Gospel Fluency Podcast. Uh, we're here again in the Clock Tower studio. Uh, I've got Catherine here is with me and a special guest, uh, David Williams, is here as well. David, welcome to the podcast. And um, yeah, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Pete. It's great to be here and thanks for inviting me. Um, my background originally, you can hear from my accent, from the UK. Um, trained as a medical doctor and then changed direction um, theological college, Anglican training, and then we were um, mission partners with a British mission agency in Nairobi in Kenya for nine years. Um, particular interest in theological education and poverty ministry there. Mm-hmm. The last 15 years I've been training our long-term gospel workers for CMS Australia, based mm-hmm. at St Andrews Hall. Mm, fantastic. Um, David, you're here for a good reason, uh, because we are in... Uh, in our series on the story of God, we're up to our redemption, particularly focusing on Jesus and what he's done for us, God's moment of redemption in the story, um, the biblical story. And we've been looking at some various uh, worldviews and how the, um, the gospel speaks into them and helps us to understand them. Um, and we've been through a couple already, um, guilt and innocence and uh, honor and shame. And now we're looking at pleasure and pain, which might be a bit of a surprise to some people, but uh, I actually was introduced to this as a, uh, a framework, I guess, to understand uh, life and culture through some of your writings. Can you tell us um, what got you interested in this particular uh, fr- framework or worldview? Yeah, so um, these kinds of frameworks are really culture 101. I think it's kind of important to say that. Um, they're, they're fairly simple interpretative devices that I think do help us to understand uh, other cultures in different kinds of ways. How I got into this is that, I mean, traditionally we've said that Western cultures, Australia, the UK, are guilt-innocence cultures. And I was trotting this out in class, and one of my trainee missionaries kind of said, do you really think like we're a guilt-innocence culture in Australia? And I kind of went, actually, you know, our, my, my parents, your grandparents, maybe, but... I think that's probably not the case. And he said, well, what are we? And I kind of went, pain, pleasure. Mm. And that seemed to really resonate with um, the folk in the room. And I've gone on digging kind of into that and trying to unpack it. And I think it it does connect. And I think it, it does resonate with people's experience. And I think it does help us to understand some of the things that have happened you know, in our own culture, say in Victoria, over the last you know five, eight years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I'm so keen to hear more about this. Uh, can you, uh, I guess, to begin with, can you take us through um, uh, the biblical story um, from using this as a particular lens? Like, do you see pleasure and pain from Genesis one onwards? Um, can we track that that as a theme? Yeah. So I think if you look at those the negative emotions and those different worldviews, guilt shame, pain, and fear, those are all emotions that appear in Genesis 3. Um, And they're all emotions that weren't present in Genesis 1 and 2. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we have a, a um, a good garden, a good God, everything is good, good, very good. And in a very good world, there's no pain and there's no shame and there's no guilt and there's no fear. And those emotions emerge in the narrative um, in chapter 3. Um, and 
again, I think it's important to say this, Adam and Eve are experiencing all of those emotions in chapter 3. So every human culture, every human person will experience and understand all of those emotions, but some cultures collectively preference some of the one or two of those lenses as a way of how they organise themselves and how they, they sanction themselves. So in the Genesis 3 narrative, um, pain particularly enters the story as part of God's judgment. Um, so man, Adam, will only um, experience, will only be able to grow crops as the fruit of the ground in mm. pain, and Eve will experience pain in childbirth. And in the story that unfolds from that, um, then very next chapter, you see the pain of um, murder and lying in the Cain and Abel story, and um, so it unfolds. Jump forward then to the end of the Bible story, and um, in Revelation 21 and 22, then we're reassured again specifically that there'll be no more tears or crying or mourning or mm. pain for the old order of things has been removed. And so, you know, the Bible story, the narrative um, begins in a world with no pain and no shame and ends with a glorious future city with no pain, no fear, no shame, no guilt. Mm. Um, and really the Bible narrative between those two points um, is, is how you get from Eden to the New Jerusalem. I think um, one of the things that's maybe a little bit different about the pain-pleasure idea is that I think it's a little bit harder to um, tie that in directly to the atoning work of Christ on the cross as substitution. Mm-hmm. So um, although I think, I think we can do that, but I think it, it's maybe a bit more obvious and intuitive that when the Lord Jesus dies on the cross, he takes my guilt and declares me mm. innocent. He takes my shame, he suffers my shame and declares me honourable before God. He is also suffering the pain that I deserve to suffer to guarantee me a uniquely pleasurable, um, glorious future mm-hmm. um, with him forever. Mm-hmm. But I think um, actually what, what the narrative of scripture does with pain pleasure is, is more to subvert it, if I can put it like that. Mm. And so over and over again in the Bible story, we keep seeing God's people who are supposed to be living for God's glory actually living for their own pleasure. But the consequence of living and pursuing their own pleasure is that they actually just keep creating pain for themselves, mm. either because the consequence of their choices are so foolish or because God acts in judgment against them because they've rejected his good and right rule over them. Mm. And the way that, uh, especially I think most clearly in John's Gospel, the pain-pleasure narrative gets subverted is with a counter-narrative of suffering and glory. Mm. And so over and over again in John's Gospel, um, you get this narrative of suffering and glory being very tightly interwoven. I think it's easy for us to think about that as um, we, the Lord Jesus suffers now in order to um, enjoy a glorious future seated at his Father's right hand. And of course that's absolutely true. But actually in, in John's Gospel, um, 
Jesus' suffering on the cross, his actual moment of crucifixion, is also his glorification in the narrative in John. So it's not just suffering now, glory then, but in a quite a profound way in the gospel, um, suffering and glory are intertwined. Mm. And how I think that works, or the reason for that, is because um, in suffering in John's gospel, the Lord Jesus is being profoundly other person centered. And the shape of love in John's gospel is a shape of suffering love. Mm. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Mm. He, you know, the evidence of God's love is that his son dies on a cross. Mm. I mean, it's, it, it's a profoundly countercultural picture of love. Mm. And I think one of the um, challenges for us as God's people living in uh, a culture that I think increasingly is making our decisions at a really fundamental level around avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure, our challenge as, as God's people is not that self-centered, pleasure-seeking love, but an other person-centered, suffering, glory love that is willing to lay down my life for my friends. Mm. And actually, the Lord Jesus says it's, it's when you do that, when you live a life of this other person-centered love, actually, mm. that's when you find life in all its fullness, mm. lived with Jesus. Mm. Yeah, that, that is so helpful and, and really just um, leaps on the pages once you begin to use those term, that terminology and those ideas. Um, that's great. Thanks so much. And um, we're going to we'll, uh, circle back around to that gospel and, and how it applies and how we can be fluent in it. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get there, let's um, have a conversation about how we recognize the, the pleasure-pain uh, framework in the culture around us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, I think we'll find it kind of leaps in front of us as soon as we start thinking in these terms. Um, Kat, maybe I'll start with you. Um, where do you see pleasure, pain as a, as a way people approach life? Um, hmm. um, yeah, it's a good question. It feels so sort of pervasive in our, our culture that it feels like it's everywhere. Uh, I think perhaps one way that stands out to me at the moment is in choices around marriage, um, why one might choose to marry another person, you know, well, they bring me joy, my life with them is more full and more happy, Mm. Uh, and then when that ceases to be the case, which if you're married you'll probably know is day two, um, then they start thinking about divorce, and uh, presumably that's because it's painful, and... uh, yeah, that seems like a pretty obvious place in my yeah. life where we, I see the the pursuit of pleasure resulting in... The pursuit of immediate pleasure, I suppose, mm. resulting in poor decisions. Mm. Mm. Um, and we could certainly expand that out to almost any relationship, oh, really, yeah. even yeah. friendships. Um, yeah. As soon as it gets hard, um, are these people I want to be around you know, um, or, or work on, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, church family, right? Like. Mm. Church family is another place where, you know, people might spend their whole life church shopping and church hopping because, well, they meet somebody who they don't agree with on politics or they, you know, happens to annoy them a little bit and then they're unwilling to uh, endure and, um, yeah, love 
mm. endure suffering for the sake of love, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what about you, David? Uh, where do you see this most prevalent? Yeah, I think if, if you trace a, a narrative through just in Victoria, um, our, our, what's happened in our state in the last eight years or so, uh, I thought it was very striking that the way that both the um, debate around same-sex marriage and the debate around euthanasia were, those debates were prosecuted very, very strongly in pain-pleasure language. Mm. So 50 years ago, those debates would have been pursued around, you know, ethics, what is right, what is wrong. The debate just almost didn't happen at all in those terms. And on the same-sex marriage conversation, it was how dare you... um, not allow me um, to pursue a relationship that is pleasurable for me. Mm. That was the terms on which the conversation took place. Mm. And then on euthanasia, um, the flip, um, how dare you force on me a painful death that I could otherwise avoid. Mm. And again, that that was the basis of the argument. Mm. And so I think when you start boiling this down, pain-pleasure becomes quite a fundamental, um, deeply rooted um, thing in our culture because it's it's really starting to shape people's fundamental sense of identity mm. uh, and I think you see that you know now 2022 uh, the same-sex marriage euthanasia debates those are long ago now that's pretty ancient history in the world that we live in but in 2022 I think it's very clear to us that the culture we live in considers your sexual and gender identity to be an absolutely fundamental and core core identity where, whereas your religious identity your faith commitments that's something culturally that you can choose that you can take on and put off mm. whereas 50 years ago it would have been exactly the flip of mm. that your religious identity is a, is a fundamental mm. core part of who you are your sexual preferences, um, I mean, gender wasn't even thought of mm-hmm. as a debate back then, but your sexual preferences were a matter of choice. Mm-hmm. And so because culturally um, people increasingly are seeing that their fundamental identity as being pleasure seekers and pain avoiders, mm-hmm. I mean, what's more pleasurable than sex culturally? Mm-hmm. And so that becomes really core mm-hmm. to how our communities um make their decision so I think Kat's illustration around marriage was absolutely mm. the kind of right place to start because mm. you know that that is getting into the heart of where this plays out into relationships and mm. um, uh, I think one of the problems with the pain pleasure worldview is that um, our emotions are so fickle and my emotions around pleasure and pain are so fickle mm. so it makes us kind of unreliable and makes as Kat said marriage is and relationships inherently quite unstable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting, and um, it's also interesting that uh, uh, we've, we've, for a certain generation, um, with pleasure, pain being uh, them being kind of the early adopters. So I'm, I'm thinking my age and older, the older millennials, <laughs> um, uh, up to Gen X, uh, we were the early adopters on pleasure, pain. With maybe our parents being less so. Um, and now wanting to pass it to our kids as this is, this is the way to view life. And so it's really interesting that, you know, I, f- I think like 10 years ago we were talking about helicopter parenting, right? This idea that you've got to hover around your kids and, and just make sure that 
they're okay at every moment of every day and ward off any potential threat of any sort that might cause them in the even mild inconvenience, right? That was 10 years ago. And then a reading uh, maybe just a few years ago that actually helicopter parenting isn't enough anymore. We need snowplow parenting where the parents don't just hover, they get out in front and bulldoze any, any, any conceivable threat to their children's pleasure, mm. um, which of course then raises a whole generation of children who... Um, who's, who actually have very limited ability or resources to draw on to deal with anything. And so I, f- I just find the whole, um, one of the really interesting phenomenon is, um, is ghosting. You know, this idea that the easiest way to get out of a relationship, whether it's a friend or a romantic partner, is to simply disappear. Mm. Because the idea that you might have to have a hard conversation with someone is immensely like um, just it's out of the question really that you would do that. It's far easier to simply disappear, even just regardless of how much pain you might bring someone else. And I think I guess that's the the, the irony of it all mm-hmm. that the more pleasure you pursue, actually someone pays for it. <laughs> someone somewhere will will pay for it. Um, can I ask a question of you, Dave? Uh, in terms of recognizing this in our culture, I found something really helpful. Um, in what you wrote, which was about um, (coughs) recognising what our inner voice might be and what that might be saying to us. Um, I wonder if you'd be willing to share that and maybe in contrast to the other worldviews. Yeah, I I was struck on on this actually from hearing a a sermon at church. I go to Snellfords and um, our evening pastor at the time kind of said, you know, we all all have an inner voice. Um, You know, we all know our inner Mm -hmm. voice is the voice of the inner lawyer telling you don't do that, that's wrong. And I guess that kind of resonated with me. I'm probably a child of a guilt-innocence culture, but I sat there thinking, man, most of the people in our young adult congregation do not have an inner lawyer as their inner voice. So Mm. if you live in a guilt-innocence culture, your inner voice is an inner lawyer telling you what's right and wrong. Mm. If you're in a shame-honour culture, your inner voice, I think, is your inner grandma going oh don't do that don't do that the shame of it you know i'll never be able to look her in the face again um and i think for a pain pleasure culture the inner voice is an inner therapist Mm, um and that's 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 the voice that you see in the advertising hoardings all the time like all all the advertising is you know you're worth it go for it you Mm. deserve it Mm. um and and so it's you know it's so much of uh advertising is targeted and marketed into a pain pleasure worldview when you start thinking about it in those terms it's kind of everywhere Mm. quite confronting actually i think Mm. yeah it's good so um if we are recognizing that people around us are living in a pleasure pain living out of a pleasure pain worldview well that might be one of the dominant ways and worldviews that they're living out of um, how do we share the gospel and the truth of the gospel with them? Because you said, like, like in a guilt-innocent sort of worldview, we go with propositional truths and truth claims, and we say, you know, well, the gospel is true, this is why, and there's even evidence that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, and let me show you all this, and people will believe it. Um, but if people aren't convinced by truth claims... Uh, how are we going to engage them with the gospel? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and to, 
to answer it, I, I probably just need to flesh out. So one of the big ironies of the pain-pleasure worldview is that we live in a culture that is pursuing pleasure and trying to avoid pain, but the outcome of that is we're living in a society that is awash with anxiety. Mm. So this, this is exactly what Charles Taylor in his massive book, A Secular Age, kind of promised that um, we're, we're, in his words, we're, we're trying to be the age of authenticity, but instead we've become an anxious age. Um, because pleasure and pain, pursuing pain and pleasure is so kind of uncertain. And I think in the culture that we're living in, um, to be people who are secure and grounded because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ um, and who uh, actually are able to demonstrate what true other person-centred love looks like, I think is profoundly compelling so I think the challenge for us as a church community is, you know, Matthew 5, it's let your light shine before people that they may see your good works. Mm. And too often our church communities are lights hidden under bushels in the old language, mm. um, lights hidden under buckets. Um, and we're not very good at letting the outside world just see how we live. Uh, the other problem, of course, is that secularism, pain, pleasure is the air that we breathe. And so it's all too easy for us actually to be sucked into this age of anxiety mm. and not to have secure, grounded, rooted lives in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but I think that um, as we live alongside our, our friends and neighbours who are not yet Christians, um, a, a deep and life-transforming faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is actually incredibly compelling and incredibly attractive in the culture that we live in. Mm. And I think opens a space for questions to be asked. Mm. Um, uh, I, I, one of my colleagues, um, many, of, many of your folk will know, Lauren and Isabel Dale, CMS people. Um, Isabel is terminally ill with lung cancer. And Lauren and Isabel's faith is just extraordinary. Uh, you know, their, their faith is fully intact. Um, they trust the Lord Jesus. They're journeying through death in, you know, the most remarkable way. Mm. And the pain-pleasure culture just cannot do that. Mm. It has no idea how to face actually the one reality mm. that we're all going to land up with one day. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, a, a, a living faith in the Lord Jesus transforms dying and death uh, that is a compelling thing and I think that opens space to talk about the gospel now as we head into the actual conversation with Kat's actual question I'm finally getting to uh, around what that looks like I think there's an opportunity and a risk so the opportunity is that um, Jesus does offer us life in all its fullness um, and life lived with the Lord Jesus is living life as life is meant to be lived. And so I think we can offer something that speaks into the culture. The risk is that um, we fall into incipient prosperity teaching. Mm. So the prosperity gospel is a perfectly contextualized gospel for a pain-pleasure culture. You know, Joel, Joel Austin's book, Your Best Life Now. So we need to not fall into false promises or promises um, that are kind of over-contextualized um, and are 
suggesting to people, you know, if you follow Jesus, you'll have a pleasurable life and he'll take away pain. Clearly, that is not the suffering glory narrative. Um, so I think we are proclaiming something that is profoundly countercultural, but can be also extraordinarily attractive. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that, um, we uh, there there is a a, a cultural pushback it seems against pleasure pain so um you've just done an amazing job of i guess contextualizing the gospel for people who are pursuing pleasure at the you know and and fleeing pain um there is a there's a voice in society which says oh well actually that's just uh creating a generation of snowflakes and you kind of see that the the um the jordan peterson kind of fan people <laughs> um, um, pursuing that kind of thing. Um, is there actually a, a way of acknowledging that that's a, there's an unhelpful pendulum swing as well and we don't want to go up the other end of the spectrum towards kind of an asceticism and, you know, avoid pleasure at all costs because that's not either from a religious point of view like godly or from a secular point of view maybe helpful or, or, um, uh, or doesn't really bring uh, um, honour or success or that sort of thing does that make sense like yeah absolutely is, is there a, is there a way to speak into that as well yeah so i think um we don't want to become you know we're not i'm not advocating we all go off into a kind of monastery and live in the desert and um we we are supposed to live out our christian lives as embodied mm. human beings and god um you know our bodies are temples of the holy spirit and we're supposed to look after them and we we live out our faith you know in our bodies not just our minds mm. um and so embodying christian faith i mean love christian love is is not a feeling it's patient kind you know 1 corinthians 13 it's nearly all behaviors i i i love people by what i do with my body mm. um and so i think i think that embodiment of christian faith is is really very significant mm. um there was a second part to your question, and I've just lost that. Uh, so if, if not asceticism, um, is, is there actually a place for Christian pleasure? I think it maybe is a, a follow-on question to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think we Christians should be people who know how to party. <laughs> I mean, it's the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, have a party. We should be celebrating the um, so much of the history of... Um, the, the Christian community was living in a rhythm that moved from, moved through, you know, the seasons of the church year in series of celebrations. And um, again, Charles Taylor's um, book, one of the things he laments is that we've lost, we lost that sense of a liturgical rhythm that actually controlled even a sense of how time worked in, mm. in the medieval world. And so being people who, who know how to lament and actually not deny pain but experience it and and feel it and live through it and people who know how to rejoice and celebrate and um you know i think the christian language is more around joy than pleasure but we should be deeply fundamentally joyful people mm. i think the, the other thing i'd say into into your question is that i think part of the pushback also is the pain pleasure narrative can be very short-term focused mm. so it can be very immediate but there is a general generational pushback around for example climate change um which is saying you know 
our planet's going to be a in a mess in 2050 if we don't do something now. Um, so I think that is a slightly different narrative, but I think it's interesting that um, in Charles Taylor's terms, the climate um, argument is still kind of in a closed universe. So the Greta Thunbergs of this world, um, they want to see climate activism getting a big say because they care about the planet that they're leaving for their children, but they're also caring about the planet they're going to live in for their retirement. Mm. So I think, I mean, it's a longer-term pain-pleasure narrative, mm. but I think it's actually still a pain-pleasure narrative. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a really helpful. And I, I guess a, an, an add-on to that is actually that um, the importance of, of Christians having really good uh, view of a new heavens and a new earth in that if you have no... Uh, conception of an afterlife then this life is all there is which means we've well, got two choices either get as much pleasure out of it as possible because then you, you die and there's nothing left or uh, maybe if you can kind of get enough kind of motivation to be a bit selfless and and enough kind of love for your then you know your children your children's children and maybe you can kind of give but um, it's it's pretty hard to be motivated right, to, to, to live that selfless life. Well, I guess for Christians we can say, well, actually, this life isn't all there is. And as you said before, like the, the, the story of the Bible ends with pleasures untold, right? So is there, is there a sense in which, well, we can actually give, we can, we can be selfless, we can even suffer a bit uh, or a lot even um, because there's, there's more, there's more than, than what this is. Absolutely. I mean, we need... Um urgently I think to have a strongly motivating eschatology that actually changes the shape of how we live that, uh, but I think um, also as part of that um, God's gracious gift of his Holy Spirit is a foretaste of that mm. um, and you know when you read the New Testament you get a powerful sense that that foretaste of the Holy Spirit for the Apostle Paul allowed him you know to write things like he does in Philippians. You know, I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. Uh, mm. You know, Philippians is the letter of joy mm. written from a Roman jail, probably, you know, jail to a soldier. Mm. And so that that sense of a kind of great eschatological future combined with um, a, a spirituality, if you, if you want to use that word, of an experience of the Holy Spirit's indwelling that shapes my day-to-day lived, embodied experience of following the Lord Jesus. Mm. And I think that comes out of, you know, a depth of spiritual formation, out of our mm. prayer lives, out of our reading of God's word, where we, you know, we're actually hearing God speak to us through the scriptures, that, mm. you know, we're crying out to him in our prayer lives and having that sense of a connection with him, not just kind of shouting into a glass dome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good. Um Maybe concluding thoughts. Kat, you got any final thoughts as we wrap up? Mm, yeah, I just um, just thinking about two things you said. I, I like. I think I wonder if, you know, for the I don't know how long, but for quite a while in Australian history, we have lived very comfortably, and so we've been able to sort of numb ourselves to the greater reality of um, and the greater hope, really, of Jesus coming back and 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 the new heavens and the new earth because well the earth right now is pretty good really so we we don't sort of crave that perhaps like we should um 
Yeah, and the other thing that I thought, just reflecting on the, the episode we did on the fall and the resources that we as believers have to um, acknowledge and respond to pain and suffering in the world are just so rich and, and are a gift to our neighbours and friends, really, who don't know the hope of Christ. Dave, any final thoughts um, to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think um, just from my my own personal Bible reading the other day, um, to, to Timothy, I think it is, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a promise. Mm. I think another aspect of, of living for the Lord Jesus in a pain-pleasure culture is that um, a holy life, a godly life, will lead to some suffering inevitably that's that's a promise and so if we're shaped by a pain pleasure worldview we'll kind of run away from holiness Mm. Uh, and so you know recognizing that in myself recognizing that Mm. pursuing pursuing holiness pursue it pursuing a god-shaped life is not going to be easy but is fundamentally actually is also life in all its fullness it's part of that story Mm, absolutely uh, and I love something you said about the um, in the gospel, Jesus subverting the pleasure pain narrative. Mm-hmm. That as followers of Jesus, if he suffered, and as you know, um, as the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, um, then yeah, how, to what extent can we as well as we follow him, knowing that um, there's uh, a, a, on one hand like a prize ahead of us, run the race to, to win the prize ahead of us, but also behind us, um, incredible motivation with um, in in as we learn to love and worship the one who who suffered for us as well. That's great. Mm. So good. Uh, David, thank you so much for giving your time. Uh, really generous, and uh, we've been so blessed. Um, thank you, Catherine, as well. Uh, we'll be back uh, next time with um, as we move to the uh, Power Fear uh, framework as we conclude our um, little mini bit here on redemption. Thank you, uh, and see you next time.